Hello, you're listening to the Duke Law Podcast from the Duke University School of Law. I'm Brandon Garrett. I'm the L. Neal Williams Professor of Law and the director of the Wilson Center for Science and Justice. This episode has been selected from our regular schedule of guest speakers, panel discussions, and conferences. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, everyone. Thank you all for joining us today. We're really, really grateful to have with us here at Duke Law and at our Wilson Center, Curtis Flowers and Henderson Hill. As many of you watching know, uh, Mr. Flowers, beginning in 1997, was tried six times for a crime he did not commit. Two of those trials ended in mistrials. Four times his convictions were reversed on appeal, including by the US Supreme Court. He served 20 years in Parchman Prison on death row. 2018, many of you may have listened to it, season two of the podcast, In the Dark, explored the case and brought national attention to the rampant injustices visited upon Mr. Flowers. The charges were finally dropped last September, and we couldn't be more pleased that he can share some words with us today, describe how this happened to him and what life has been like since. We have with us Henderson Hill, currently senior counsel at the ACLU Capital Punishment Projects. He's worked for a decade as a public defender, death penalty attorney, civil rights lawyer. He founded the Center for Death Penalty Litigation here in Durham, co-founded the Eighth Amendment Project, he served recently on the North Carolina Governor's Task Force on racial justice and our criminal justice system here in North Carolina. And in 2019, he joined Mr. Flowers' defense team as Mr. Flowers faced a, a seventh trial. So thank you. Thank you both for joining us here today. It's really a pleasure to welcome you. And I have some questions I want to ask, but we can keep this free flowing. And I'm sure that many in the audience will have questions. So welcome. Thank you, thank you Brandon. It's good to be with you. I, I know uh, I can speak for Curtis, Mr. Flowers, when I say this is one of his first appearances on this kind of uh, setup. Uh, and uh, the butterflies will go away, uh, but he's happy to join and to, and to share his story with you. Curtis? Maybe I can ask a question that hopefully no butterflies are on this. Um, maybe you could talk about what your normal life was like before 1997, before you had any reason to think about who the DA was in Winona, Mississippi. Like what was what was regular life for you before, you know, six six trials ago? <laughs> oh, hanging out with family, uh, having a good time, uh, singing gospel every weekend, and just just enjoying life. And I, I know you love singing gospel and have for a long time. Are you back singing gospel again today? Yes, I am. We don't get to travel as much now due to COVID, you know, so we just come together and just have a good time at home. And has, has, has music and singing always been a part of your life or is it something, you know, more towards adulthood, you, you started singing more gospel or? Yes, I, I started singing about, about the age of 10. Age of 10. Yes. That's a great age to really get into music. Yes, and my dad and I, we still get together from time to time and just sing, you know, whenever I can get that way. Right now it's snowing and ice out there. I can't, can't move right now. <laughs> Yeah, I haven't had the privilege of the full measure of listening to Mr. Archie, Curtis's father, and Curtis harmonize. But I visited the family home in Winona, uh, even while Curtis was still detained. And there was just something special about the spirit, the spirit of family, that enveloped that home. Uh, you could see uh, the setting, the household that raised Curtis to be the man that he is, the man he's always been. And that was a man that could not have participated in this crime. What a special family it is, Curtis. And 
we all wish Miss Lola was here to celebrate with you, but in many ways, she'll always be there with you. Yes, my mom, she was my rock. Yeah, we did everything together. My mom, she was the glue to everything. You know, whether it was family reunions, vacations, uh, just family get-togethers, and, and she could cook too. <laughs> yes, yes, she was a rock. And I, I do miss her, dearly. Yeah. For, for folks who haven't been to Winona, what, what was the town like? Is it kind of small? Small, definitely small town. Yes, not a whole lot to do. I think if you didn't have family functions, you know, you'd just be bored all the time. But Winona is a real small place. Yeah. And uh, let's turn to the, the harder things for you to remember and talk about. When did you first hear that uh, this murder of four people happened? I'm, I'm sure in a small town like that, word traveled fast. Well, it was the same day, uh, I think around noon, somewhere in there, uh, about 12 o'clock, 12.30, somewhere in there, you know, when the officers showed up uh, and let me know that they wanted to talk with me downtown because I used to work there and everything. But uh, it, I kind of described it. At first, you know, I didn't think anything of it. You know, I, I used to work there. Maybe, you know, they want to know if I know anything or anything mm -hmm. like that. But, you know, the more I talk with them, you know, and the more they talk with outside people, then I find out, you know, I was a suspect. Yes, and, you know, that made my heart drop. <laughs> Me, a, a killer, you know, but it was a disturbing thing. It really was. Yeah, because I, I felt like everybody knew me in my own room. Yes, and, and that's why I just I just couldn't understand me being a suspect. Yeah. And did the, did the officers try to pressure you to confess? Oh, yeah, it was a lot of that, uh, talking every day. And, you know, uh, uh, this person said that they, what if this person say they saw you here or this person say they saw you there? I said, well, that would be a lie. Yeah, and uh, they even pressured me to try to uh, say that someone else did it at one point. I said, I just can't say that. They said, well, this person is willing to say that you did it. I said, well, that's what they make attorneys for. Two wrongs don't make a right. And, and, and we went from there. Yeah. And Brandon, you asked uh, Curtis what was Winona like? Well, what was striking was Winona, to me, calls up Fannie Lou Hamer in 1963 when she was stopped at the depot there and uh, put in the Winona County Jail. And it was the violence that was visited on, on her at that jail that is so reminiscent of the way in which the justice system uh, violated uh, Mr. Mr. Flowers is right. This is a hard story to tell. It's a hard story to relive uh, when you talk about the the conduct both by the police and the prosecutor against Mr. Flowers. So yes. Take a couple of deep breaths, uh, Mr. Flowers, as we go through this. Yeah. All right. I mean, later you, you uh, as your case goes to trial, you, you start to hear that these types of rumors, this someone claimed he saw this, someone claimed she saw that. Yes, that was all I had. That was that was the case against you. That was, um, I mean, what was your what were your conversations like with your lawyer the first time around? You're telling your lawyer, you know, you told everyone that you you didn't do this. I mean, did, were you thinking the first time around? Oh, come on, they don't. How could they have any evidence? That doesn't make any sense. That for sure the jury will see the light, and we have a system of justice in this country. Everything will be okay. That's how I felt. Yeah. That's exactly how I felt. And it, it seems that 
you know, I, I talked with them every time they wanted to talk. And then it, it was like when they posted reward money, you know, uh, posters all over the town. You know, it was like people who didn't even know me, knew me then, you know. Mm-hmm. I saw him here. I saw him there. And, and I guess in the end, when no one received the money that I know of, you know, and then everybody started recanting the stories and stuff like that, you know. And but I had done, I had done twenty something years, you know, when all this took place. Yes, but it, it was it was nerve wracking. It really was. So tell us about jailhouse informants. Uh, we see so many cases around the country where we have the same thing: someone in the jail who gets some incentive for for telling lies comes forward and said, "Oh yeah, I heard a confession." I heard a confession. <laughs> yeah, now, now that in itself was 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 painful to to watch in here. Mm-hmm. You know, sitting in a courtroom, you know, you're already being judged by a jury. You know, you, you can't just jump up and say, "Oh, that's a lie." You know, and, and it was it was it was real nerve-wracking to just hear someone, you know, use someone to put someone else away, and and I guarantee you, probably eight times out of ten, he knew it was a lie. Did you know any of these people who came forward and said, oh, yeah, I heard him confess. I saw him running away. I knew of some. You know, not, I not know them, know them, but I knew of them. And I think Odell was someone that I felt they wouldn't believe anyway because I was on death row. Odell was a state inmate. State inmates are not housed with death row. And so how could he be in a cell close to me and me give a confession to him? And I, I didn't understand it. But, uh, you know, apparently the jury bought it and I went back to prison, you know. Yes, and uh, I tell him just sitting there all those years, it, it, it really takes a lot out of you, you know. And I think having uh, a loving family that I have, you know, mom who never missed a V-Day, I don't she could help it. <laughs> and, and this kept me motivated. Yeah, even the times where I wanted to give up, you know, she wouldn't let that happen. Yes, you know, I raised you better than that. And it just kept me strong, kept me going. If you can, tell us about Parchment Prison. Oh. People, I'm sure, have an image in their mind of, of what it must be like, but I'm sure no one watching this really knows what it's like. I think I told someone this once before, uh, Parchment Prison is like the worst dream you ever had, and and you double that. I mean, the, the conditions are bad, uh, whether it was sewage, I'm talking food, uh, in the summertime, the heat, the mosquitoes, it, it, it was just rough. It was just rough. The rats, uh, parchment is, is some, some, it's a place that I think should have been shut down. Yeah, you know, inmates dying, you know, because uh, not receiving the proper medical care, things like that. Uh, I was diagnosed with diabetes while in parchment. And that in itself was rough on me because I, I stayed in the, in the hospital for like 18 days, came back to the cell, and I think it was like a, Two weeks later, I had to go back to the hospital for another 14 days, and, and it was just rough. It was rough. And, and being on death row, while you're in the hospital, you can receive no visitation at all, you know? And exercise was hard because of the little pins that they put you in. You know, these are like, I, I would say something I would build for my dog, you know, to be able to move around in. Uh, I mean, just, just walking around in the pen would get you dizzy because they're that small. You know, and you could sit out there for about an hour, sometimes an hour. You know, if the officer is ready to sit down and not do anything, you know, they may give you 30, 45 minutes, and, and that's it. Come back in, you start your shower, 
where they take inmates to the shower one at a time. When they're done with that, the rest of the day, you just sat and sail. Um, and I tried to occupy my time, like writing letters and mm-hmm. watching sports on TV or reading and things like that. How often could you see uh, your family? The first and third Tuesday of every month, yes, from 9 a.m. to 11. Sometimes it ended early if there was commotion or problems. There could be a fight going on somewhere in another building, and all the officers had to rush, so they would end visit, claiming that they had no one to sit over us while they go and handle an emergency. You know, Brandon, parts from prison is called the penal farm or the plantation. Like 17,000 acres in Sunflower County, Mississippi, the heart of the Delta. So when you're talking about the summer heat or the winter cold, everything is, you know, 10 times more extreme in the individual huts called units on that plantation. And that's where the sense of claustrophobia uh, that you can get occurs. It's not, you don't get access to any of that 17,000 acres. You're in unit 29, which is dark, ugly, dank, cold. And what it's 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 completely inhumane. Yeah. Inmates flooding, just just snapping, you know. Uh, some not getting the proper medical care, you know, and they're doing things to themselves, and and it was just always something you know, that would keep you from getting a good night's sleep. <laughs> but Parchment is a place that I seriously believe need upgrade because it, it's it's rough in there. Now you know you have so many inmates who wasn't as fortunate as I am, you know? I mean, don't get it wrong. There's a lot of inmates who I feel should be there or who are guilty, but then there are a lot who were put there wrongfully, I felt, you know? And, and I think these are cases that really should be looked into. And, and it's, it's a bad place for anyone, but, you know, it should be looked into. Let's talk a little bit more about how you got there and kept getting put back after one trial, two trials. I mean, twice. There's a hung jury and the jury didn't buy it and there's a mistrial. Um, and uh, I'm interested in why, why you thought that happened. I mean, with everything that this, all the power that the law enforcement prosecutor had behind them, twice they couldn't, they couldn't cut it. Yes, and I feel every time they gave me, whether two times or that, that we did have mistrial, I felt that they had gave me an impartial jury. And I think Mr. Evans knew it too. And, and he would send me back to the county jail. I'll sit there until that next year. And he tried me again. And then I felt that he caught on to what was happening. And then he went again and tried to get rid of all blacks, you know, and, and they, they convicted me again, you know, because he succeeded at that. And let's talk about that jury selection in your case. Eventually, the Supreme Court said that you know, Justice Kavanaugh was saying it was a relentless, determined effort to rid the jury of black individuals. Yes. And in this day and age, how did... How did the prosecutors get away with that? It sounds as if it was just blatant, the effort to secure in any way possible, like a white-only or an almost white-only jury. I assume Winona, Mississippi is not a white-only town. How, how were they going about it in the courtroom? It, it, it was sad. I think, uh, I, well, from what I experienced and saw, I thought Doug was using every strike he had against African men. Mm-hmm. And the only time he couldn't is when he ran out. And, 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 and it, it was nerve-wracking to sit there and, and, and see all this, you know, and, and, and no one stepping in to do anything about it, you know, especially the judge. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it was just, it was just hurt. Yes. And I don't know much about the law, but, you know, I, I could just sit there and just see that what he was doing was just clearly wrong. And, and to see him not 
be punished for it or, or correct it in the courtroom was really near a record. It really was. I think the number that came up at the Supreme Court was something like 41 out of 42 prospective Black jurors in your various trials yeah. were excused. So when your lawyer, Sherry Lynn Johnson and Keir Weibel were up at the court arguing that, could you remember just seeing black face after black face being shown the door yeah. and, and wondering whether any African-American was ever going to sit in one of your trials? Yeah, it, it was rough. I, I didn't I didn't never think any of them would ever get to sit on a trial, any of them. And, and to watch them come into the courtroom one by one and sit on the witness stand and, and, and walk out and you see the DA just use his strikes. Your Honor, I, I want to uh, strike juror number so-and-so, so-and-so. And I would find the papers and look, and I saw another black juror gone. You know, and, and, and to see the judge just okay, it, it, it was really near record. It really was. To see my attorneys get up and argue the fact that juror number so-and-so was no different than juror number so-and-so. And just, just it, was hurt. it was hurtful. It really was. Tell us about, so eventually more evidence comes out, right, that we have these witnesses, jailhouse informants, recanting, mm -hmm. saying, talking about a different kind of prosecutorial misconduct, saying that there's pressure put on them yeah. to change their story or to, to not admit that they didn't really see anything. And, and so as that evidence starts to come out, including because journalists start to get involved, why do you think the prosecutor still doesn't shake, still doesn't, still doesn't want to give up? I, I couldn't understand it. Uh, uh, I, I remember hearing of jurors recanting and, and stuff like that. I mean, uh, witnesses, it was frustrating, disappointing, and yet I was relieved, you know, that, it, that you know, it was happening. You know, I wish it would have been a whole lot sooner, but, but I, I was relieved that it was happening. And I think from, from watching and reading, well, reading most of uh, the In the Dark reports and stuff like that, things they investigated, you know, and, and it just came to my conclusion that, that Doug Evans was just a racist. He he just focused on me and and locked on to me and would not let go. I, I think he wanted to hold his position with the townspeople. You know, uh, I, I don't think he really wanted to look bad before them. And I think that was one of the reasons he stuck with what he had uh, determined for me. He's guilty. And, and you know, because a lot of people, one owner is, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think over 45% black. And, and I felt that Doug Evans really did not want the people to think bad of him. And, and I couldn't blame the, the victim's family because Doug Evans had planted in their mind that I was the guy, you know, and, and it really hurt it. But I, in, a other, in another interview, I, I reached out and, and, I, and I felt sorry for them. And I told them, I hope they find the guy that did it. But Curtis Flowers is not the one. And I, you know, and I couldn't blame him for, oh, he's guilty, you know, because that's the way Doug, you know, told them, you know. And it, it was really painful. But I think, being home and as time went by and the case was dismissed, you know, I can go into one owner and not see a lot of those same hateful faces when they see me. You know, people wave and and and, and that's a good feeling. You know, I know there are still some out there who might believe that I'm still guilty, but for the most part, you know, they they treat me with respect and I give it back. So you mentioned the in the dark podcast. There probably was no such thing as a podcast when they when they first tried you for these crimes, right, in 1997. Like, what's a podcast? How did you first hear from the, the journalists in the dark and and uh, first start to learn about what they were they were uncovering in your case? Well, the, the, the first time I heard of them is 
after they started. I think they had been there almost a year and, and started uncovering things. And and my mom came to visit me one day and she she brought up Madeline Baran. And I said, I've never heard of her. I don't, what is a, I'm just like you, what is a podcast? I'm not a podcast. Well, she said, they are in there, they are investigating this case and they are uncovering. And later I received a letter from Madeline uh, letting me know uh, that they are working on my case, investigating. She said someone, to this day, I still don't know. Someone sent her a letter and said, you guys should look into this case. And uh, they did. And uh, she told me they had uncovered so much stuff. And uh, she said, we're just out here seeking the truth. We don't fall one way or the other, but we are doing what we do. And also relieved after getting another visit from my mom. And she said, oh, let me tell you. She said, they are uncovering so much uh, wrongdoing by the DA and his staff. And it was like a weight had been lifted off me. Now, to me, it's just a matter of time now. Yeah, I said, then my case went back before the U.S. Supreme Court. And to hear that they had overturned it, uh, I just felt like, I could breathe again. And, but then, yeah, I was facing a, a seven trial. Yeah, so get into the county jail and sit in there for months and then granting, judge granting bail. Then I'm placed on house arrest in Texas where I had to sit. But that was a that was a nice sit, you know, because I take house arrest any day over prison. <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> yes. And, and then I, I remember being home and not too long after that, you know, this pandemic came. And then, you know, my brother-in-law, he can go to work every day. So he's sitting in the house with me and he's complaining and I'm looking at him smiling, you know. And he said, uh, bro, what you laughing at? I said, hey, welcome to the party, pal. <laughs> I've been doing this for years. So, you know, this is nothing to me. But uh, he, just to watch him not be able to get out and go to work, having to work from home every day, he found that suffering. And then one day we was talking and he said, uh, you know what? This morning I was thinking about your situation and mine. I have no reason to complain. He said, if you can do this here, uh, no one should be complaining about anything. And and we laughed about it, but he was someone I talked with every day. You know, he, he helped me realize one day, he said, you still living like you in prison. He said, I go in your bedroom, you got snacks in there. He said, the kids <laughs> like you don't, you're not locked up anymore. You don't have to live like this. <laughs> but, you know, it was just that that mindset, you know, because in penitentiary, you, you don't take anything for granted. You don't throw away anything. It could be like a noodle seasoning pack. You will hold on to it because you're going to need it for something. Whether it's a piece of chicken or something called parchment, they don't season anything because you have a lot of inmates who high blood pressure and stuff like that. So you have to keep these things, you know, to, to make things cook. Yeah. Brandon, there's a part of the story that didn't come out in that last conversation. Uh, you know, the investigation uh, before the Supreme Court argument probably took five, six years. And uh, by the Mississippi, Mississippi Innocence Project, Mississippi Justice Center, and then the tremendous introduction of the Hogan Lovells team uh, and the kind of effort they put in, turning over every stone uh, was just amazing. Uh, it included two Duke law grads, you know, Jonathan Abram, David Maxwell were heroes in this case, as was the entire team. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, one thing to say, six trials, Curtis had some really tremendous lawyers in each one of those trials. And what was amazing about Curtis's story was that at each point, the DA and his investigators sought to cheat 
and to keep information from his lawyers and obviously from the jury. Uh, but it really is a story of how the justice system broke down, not by accident, not because there wasn't enough money to pay lawyers to represent uh, an indigent person, but by the deliberate intent of the prosecution to cheat and violate the law. And the discrimination of the jurors was only one strategy. Let's talk about other evidence that was concealed. What role did journalists play in uncovering some of that? What role did did some of the attorneys that came in, like the Mississippi Innocence Project, Justice Center, Hogan, how did, I mean, stuff that gets concealed can well, stay yeah, that way. <laughs> your, your basic tool to discover things is uh, Brady motions, you know, the request of the state uh, for exculpatory evidence. And when you're talking about a client who's never been arrested before, much less arrested for a violent crime, uh, you're going to plow the state with information. Well, who are the other suspects that you have? You know, what about the gun, the weapon? You know, yeah, how, how did we learn about a potential weapon in this case? And the prosecutor had information about other suspects. And as it turned out, what the law firm and other investigators found out is these, pro these prospective potential suspects had so much more likely evidence against them than Curtis ever did. But no one looked. And, and the point of system breakdown is the lawyers would ask in open court for this exculpatory information. And Doug Evans would give a response that was wholly inaccurate. There'd be testimony from the investigative detective, wholly inaccurate, uh, the case detective, wholly inaccurate. So even the efforts of those lawyers in your earlier trials to get at the truth was stumped, stopped by the deliberate intentional misconduct of the prosecutor and his investigators. It's, it really is a shameful story. I thought In the Dark did a wonderful job of putting pictures and faces and voices to this. I and mean, these young women went out there with cameras and microphones and got the stories in, in a way in which a dry pleading, an affidavit, a witness statement filed in, in, in a court pleading just wouldn't do. And I think the impact of the In the Dark podcast was, was monumental. It just got people's eyes open. You know, in our visits to Winona, people from both sides of the track had followed the podcast and were willing to engage with us as members of the legal team and share their views across the racial divide that they knew and understood that a misjustice had occurred. None of that would have gotten out simply on the strength of a Supreme Court argument or a well-crafted filing of, by one of the nation's best law firms. It took that kind of amplification uh, to reach people. How did that feel to you, Curtis, to all of a sudden hear that, that these journalists were amplifying your story to like a national, national audience? It's, it felt good. It felt good. I, I was so thankful for them. To this day, I still am. I thought In the Dark did some awesome work, things that, like Henderson said, couldn't get done early on, you know, and I don't know a whole lot about them as far as, you know, their personal lives, but as a podcast, uh, investigators, uh, they are awesome. And, and they came in and got the job done, and I will forever be grateful for them. Uh, they, they're just awesome. There was a Mississippi detective, an African-American detective, yeah. who was friendly uh, with Miss Lola, and he committed to Miss Lola not to let go of this bone. 
He yeah. was going to chew on it, chew on it until the truth came out. And Max Mays was a man of his word. That investigator looked at some of these alternative suspects, <laughs> uncovered rocks uh, that were not uncovered. And uh, again, that is so, so much of what informed the work of the law firm uh, in its pleadings and its, in, in its work and what came out through the investigation of the journalist. But, you know, it's amazing, Brandon, the, the combination of lawyers, investigators, journalists who tapped into this essential truth yeah. of Curtis's innocence and the wrongness of it. I, I tell Curtis all the time, that his case in the Supreme Court is going to be there forever, for a long time. And Winona will have two, two faces to it, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer and Curtis, <laughs> Curtis Flowers, uh, because it, it's, uh, your case is symbolic of what has been wrong with uh, the American justice system really from the beginning. Yes. What did it take, given that the, you know, se seems like the local, locals were willing to go for a seventh trial? Were you surprised, Curtis, that they did finally say six is enough? Yes, I really was, uh, because when I, I came home on, on uh, bail, well, my, matter of fact, right before I came home, I met uh, Rob McDuff and Henderson. And, you know, and just talking with them, you know, it was a relief to have such, you know, awesome lawyers for the seventh trial. And But I, I wasn't shocked that they wanted to go back to trial for a seventh time. But uh, after sitting there one night and enjoying myself, me and my brother-in-law, sister, uh, I received a phone call and it was the lawyers from Hogan Level. And uh, Ashley Johnson told me, she said, I got some uh, good news and I got some bad news. She said, what do you want first? I said, let's get the uh, bad news. She said, well, the bad news is that we still don't know who's wearing your name on the back of their helmet in the NFL. She said, now the good news is your case just been dismissed. Oh, oh man, I, it, it was I couldn't breathe for a second, you know, and I was so happy, you know, <laughs> and I think my sister was, was. I think I had to, I had to stop and, and take care of her for a second because she was so excited and we all started uh, popping champagne and having drinks and it, it was, it was a glorious moment for me. Yeah, and then to get a call from the monitoring guys for instruction on how to remove the house arrest monitor. Yes, and I felt like I was free for the first time, you know. You know, just being home, but yet walking around with a big old monitor around your ankle, you know, you still felt locked up. But I was just happy to be home. And we re-celebrated re and had a good time. Brandon, you asked uh, what would make the locals want to try this a seventh time. It's important to realize that the decision not to pursue a seventh trial was made uh, by a new attorney general yes. in the state of Mississippi who brought a level of professionalism uh, and diligence to her investigation and review of this decision. She had just come into office when uh, this was laid on her lap and the, the degree of attention and effort and investigation and review of the voluminous materials that her staff undertook was professional and thorough in every respect. And so it, there's a very di big difference between that local authority that made that decision and the DA of Montgomery County, who went back to the well six times, finding new ways to cheat every time. Two very different officers, offices, and approaches. We have a lot of great questions in the Q&A, and some of them we've kind of already talked about, but one, one, one question is right just about this, which is, well, okay, how about accountability for prosecutors who cheat? Is anything gonna happen to the 
based on all the misconduct that came to light in Winona. I'm sure your case is not the only one. It's not like people, uh, it's not like they cheated once. There were six trials and a lot of other people had trials during those years. Is there any pressure to, to pursue some form of accountability? I believe there should be. And I also believe that every case Doug Evans had ever tried should be looked into. And I, I guarantee you find something where he has wronged someone in convicting them. Like I said, uh, I've talked about it with certain lawyers about, you know, trying to see if we can't get him somehow because he needs to be punished. I don't think the uh, state would just take it upon themselves to do it, but uh, I think some something needs to be done. And I'll say this, uh, Rob McDuff is one of the most skilled and committed civil rights lawyers in the country, and Hogan Lovells is one of the most extraordinary law firms in the country, and they are both assisting uh, Curtis in the review and the investigation of his options. And yeah, I, I think if there's any collection of lawyers that can deal with the challenges of immunity, absolute immunity, qualified immunity. I feel confident that the lawyers on, on Curtis's team will bring, uh, bring the appropriate action in the appropriate forum. And, and speaking of that, right, so and it's not like when you were released, you're given any compensation by the state or any help. I guess initially you're, you had to pay some funds because you had to pay a bill bonds person, right? <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't get that back, right? And so is there a path forward in terms of trying to secure compensation for all the years you spent in prison? Is that something something that the legal team is, is still looking at? Yes, yes, they are. Yeah. Yes. I'll say that one of the good results of the, the coverage that the podcast initiated was we had people of goodwill from across the country who were generous in their support. And significant uh, folks who have become friends yep. now of Curtis and his family, uh, but they they enabled him to make that bond where there would have been no way, no path forward. And so, yeah, all of us are encouraging Curtis uh, to uh, to attend to his health issues. You know, he's learning to live all over again in the twenty first. I forget which century we're in, Curtis. I think it's the 21st century, but there's all sorts of technologies here that I'm trying to get used to and I'm sure are, are challenging you. But he's got a group of friends and supporters, both from the legal team and just folks of goodwill who have come to learn his story. I, I tell Curtis of Daryl Hunt, who Duke awarded an honor, honorary degree to 2012. I recall being there when Daryl got that award. It was, it was just a, a representation of the community appreciation of the experience he went through and the grace with which he came through and sought to help others. And yeah, I see in Curtis much of that same commitment to service and to community uh, and, to, and to spread love. And it's just a remarkable a genuineness to be in touch with. Uh, thank you for that, Curtis, always. Thank you. And but yes, I am. I am uh, working. We're in the process of starting a foundation. Uh, it's called the Curtis Flowers Foundation, where we will be helping you know law students get enrolled into uh, college, good colleges. Uh, we want to later venture out and start helping inmates who are in the same situation I was. You know, afford good attorneys, investigators, and stuff like that. Yeah, that's amazing. I can't wait to see the work that you do. Uh, it's not everyone that wants their 
that is thinking in their transition back to the community. What, well, what can I do? What can I do for the community? That's that's a that's a real special mission you have set up for you there. Yes, yeah, uh, anyone go through what I went through, and so I want to do something to help. Well, I hope our our listeners, viewers today, think about the Curtis Flowers Foundation when they're thinking about who to who to support. We have a bunch of other really really important great questions and. Uh, one question for you, Mr. Flowers, is you know well, what advice do you have for others who are still incarcerated and fighting a similar battle behind bars? What would you say to someone who is to, still on the other side? To stay strong and, and never give up. Never give up. Don't allow yourself to become institutionalized, as we call it, where you start to eat, sleep, and think prison all the time. You know, getting caught up in the everyday stuff that goes on in prison. You know, you gotta you gotta separate yourself from that. I was there. You know, I. I pretty much kept to myself unless I was talking to someone immediately around me. You know, there were times where I came out for visitation. I walked by someone's cell and, hey, man, you act like you're just too good for everybody else. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. When I come by you, I acknowledge you. And that's it. Because we're on two different paths. I'm, I'm trying to get out that door. You done settle, you know, and, and I can't make you follow me. And I sh I'm sure not going to let you take me down that road with you. But you just got to stay away from it. If you, if you, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Yes, and just stay strong. Never give up. Got to stay positive. A great question we had is that, um, you know, sometimes when people hear about a trial being reversed, they say, oh, it must have been a legal technicality. Mm -hmm. But here, there's, you know, there's no evidence linking you to the crime. No real evidence. And so how do we turn the narrative around and explain to people the role that racial bias and misconduct plays in convictions like yours? get people to understand that it's not just legal technicalities. There can be something seriously, seriously wrong and, and racist with a, with a criminal conviction. Mm, that is a good question, though. <laughs> in, in maybe your story well, is Exhibit A, maybe. Well, we're glad, Curtis, that there are folks like the good people at Duke's Innocence Project <laughs> that are doing exactly that. You know, Curtis is now one of, I don't know, over 170 people who have been exonerated from death row. And the it's, actually, it's over 180 as of today. There's just a new report as of today from the Death Penalty Information Center uncovering 11 more death row operations. Wow. So it's it's a lot of people. Look at that. I mean, the patterns are there, and it falls. The reasons fall in different buckets. Some of it's race. Some of it's discrimination in juries. Some of it is just just the awful level of investigation that occurs, uh, particularly with black defendants. And for that matter, black homicide victims. And so these disparities are hard to uproot. But I think what we can do is publicize, give the public more information. Uh, the recent racesroots.org webpage by CGPL is very helpful. The Death Penalty Information Center is putting out information on a daily basis that journalists and others amplify. So I think people are learning. And Curtis's story is just that kind of thing that might open people's eyes and ears to it, because there's nothing like uh, making the personal connection between someone who's been victimized by institutional and specific racist conduct. And we can look at Curtis's story and find level after level of that kind of uh, misconduct and abuse. So, so Curtis, I'm glad you're getting over the nerves. I mean, you're doing really well. You know, the butterflies have not controlled. Uh, and this is the story that so many more people need to hear. Yes.
Another great question we got because it'd be pretty understandable for someone who's been through what you've been through to be consumed by anger. And everything you've described describes a life of grace, even on death row. And so one question is, well, how do you, how do you move forward with your life without anger? Well, I, I was, everything I've ever taught in life, you know, you, you, you do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You, you, mm -hmm. you don't walk around with no grudge on your shoulders, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, I, I tell everyone, you know, when, when all this took place, you know, and coming home, you know, I, I was disappointed, but I, I, I'm the type, I, I won't hate you. I won't uh, uh, feel like I need to do something to you. Uh, you know, it's, it's okay to hate a person ways, but, and yet not hate the person, you know? Uh, I was raised that way, you know, and uh, my mom, dad always instilled on us, you know, we were, we were a church going family, you know, uh, raised up, you know, having Bible study and things like that, you know, and, and these type of things, they, they really helped me, you know, and I just try not to think negative, always get up every day and think positive, you know, I get the word in, a word of prayer and, and just move on, just move on, you know, because it's, it's different when, when you're locked up and you can't get away from negative stuff. But being out in the world, no one should have to suffer from negative stuff. You have every right to move away from it. Stay away from it. <laughs> yeah, and that's me. Yes, and that's how I carry myself. Another great, great question we had is, well, for our students, mm -hmm. for our alums, for what, what can lawyers do? Obviously, you benefited from some real remarkable lawyering over the years. And in your case alone shows what work lawyers can do at law firms, at innocence projects, at nonprofits. Anderson, do you want to share some additional thoughts too on what, what our larger legal community can do to band together, to work to remedy injustices, prevent ongoing patterns of misconduct, free the innocent, fix the system? Well, I think we're at a time when more and more people are asking that question. And I think it's time to stop looking for this very small tweaks. I mean, the system is really in dire need of transformation. And, you know, Curtis's story is special because it's connected with innocence. And the stories of 180 other people exonerated are special because uh, they're in, they involve innocent people. But in North Carolina, there are 4,000 people serving life sentences in prison. Uh, there are 34,000 citizens in prisons. People are being locked up and keys are thrown away for decades at a time with no sense to how that is helpful to the individual, to the family, or to the community. I mean, I think we need to recognize uh, that our penal system is a direct outgrowth of the period of enslavement and of racial oppression that followed with Black codes, Jim Crow, and mass incarceration. And it will take a transformation of that system uh, to bring equity to it. We're arresting too many people. We're arresting uh, too many people because of their color of their skin or their economic circumstances or the zip codes they live. You know, we're consigning them to incarceration for decades at a time where, where the sentence is not connected to an appropriate value system that uh, that a good goal is being served. And we're not identifying, you know, generations of traumatized individuals and families that are excluded from any service by our justice system. So uh, I, I thought that in North Carolina, Curtis, the governor took note of these large problems and started a process to help address it. 
we need to encourage that process to continue and to demand of that process some significant articulable steps that are addressed uh, to transformation. So I look at the Duke community and to the law profession more broadly and say, we've got a very special burden to help with that transformation and that change. And we as a profession uh, need to commit ourselves to doing that. And many of the lawyers and nonprofits that have been associated with Curtis's case are centrally involved in that process. And, you know, uh, we should find ways of supporting them. We have a lot of work to do right now, but it's, it does feel like there's, we have a head of steam. Yep. And, uh, and people are talking about problems like sentencing and pretrial detention and length of sentences. COVID has shed some new light on why do we have people locked up in our pandemic epicenters or our jails and our prisons. So I, I hope we can make a lot more progress in states like Mississippi, North Carolina, Illinois, every state, and, and maybe some federal progress now too. And there's a lot that non-lawyers can do as well, obviously, whether it's working with lawmakers, calling your lawmaker. Uh, local elections matter a lot. It matters a lot who the prosecutor is in Winona, Mississippi. I think, right, uh, the prosecutor that went after you six times, would have done a seventh, ran on a post in the last election. And uh, so politics matters. And, and uh, work that we can do supporting nonprofits, supporting investigative journalism, supporting research. Brandon, that point that you made that non-lawyers need to be brought into the process, you know, one of the remarkable and I think the best parts of the governor's task force was to expand it, uh, the membership beyond lawyers, beyond law enforcement, to include, you know, regular businessmen, you know, uh, teachers, regular folk who had lots to contribute, but also had a lot to learn about how the system operated. And once they learned, Eyes open, people get energized, and they want to participate in the change and in the transformation. So I think a good part of what needs to be done is breaking out of the the legal courthouse silo and getting other elements, as you hinted at, as you described, getting other folks involved in the conversation uh, beyond the legal uh, profession. Right. uh, We can go a little bit longer if you're okay with that. We do have a a whole big group of questions that has come in, and... uh, Another another really great question that that one of our viewers asked was, we heard about how you got very you got no support really except from family, from friends, from people who are concerned about your case. You got no support from the state when you were released. If the state was doing it right, what sort of resources do you wish you had to help help return to to life in the community? I would I would say some type of I think you know when state inmates are released from prison, you know, they go to what they call a pre-release, you know, where they uh, talk to adapt back into society, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, I even think they are given some type of, some type of, uh, what do you call it, uh, where they receive a certain amount of funds, you know, to to help adjust back into the free world. Uh, I think that that same thing should apply for someone who has been on death row for 20-something years, you know, uh, it's 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 a hard process, you know. Let me tell let me tell you a funny moment. I was re- uh, released on a house arrest and left Mississippi, went to Texas, and uh, along the way, when we first got into some a certain part of Texas, we stopped at a restaurant. I was in the restroom, you know, and uh, used the urinal, you know, and I stepped back looking for a handle to pull because that's how it was before I went in, you know. And I stood. Everybody kept coming back. Just just step away, uh, you know. I said, no, it's rude to, you know. 
do this and just walk away, you know. Uh, he says, everybody, just step away. And I stepped back and the thing flushed itself. So I walk back up and I'm looking, trying to see why it flushed itself. Now, I wash my hand and I go back out into the restaurant part. And as I pass by tables, everyone is laughing. I think the guys went back and told the wives. And uh, one lady told me, she said, sir, it's going to be all right. You've been away for a while. <laughs> and and it, it was a funny moment. And it was just readjusting. I couldn't even pump gas because I didn't know how to operate the gas pump. <laughs> but uh, I'm slowly adjusting, you know. And I think another funny moment was someone gave me an iron to iron a pair of pants. You know, that was this much cord hanging out the back of the iron. And I said, now how can I use this? Uh, someone told me, just pull the cord. I said, I'm not going to tear the iron up. So just pull the cord and I pulled the cord and the, and the cord just started coming out of the iron. And that was another funny moment right there. I said, the last time I saw something like this, it was on a vacuum. <laughs> <laughs> it was a funny moment, but I'm adjusting. I am adjusting, you know, and all this new technology has really got me, you know, every day you're learning something. Yes. Brandon, I should say that uh, Rob McDuff has been in serious conversation uh, with the Attorney General about the state's position on okay. statutory compensation. Yeah. And so uh, the signs are very good that the state will take uh, the appropriate and reasonable position with respect to uh, Mr. Flowers' right to statutory compensation. That's good to hear. Yeah, I mean, it has been a could change that more states now have something in place. It may not be what you could get in a federal civil rights lawsuit, but they have something in place Right. Uh, if you can show you were wrongly convicted. Speaking of modern technology and the podcast, Anderson, do you have any advice about how uh, one of our listeners asked, you know, to get national media attention for a wrongful conviction case? What's the secret? It, was, it sounds like it was in the dark happened because they just came across it and there was no, there was no secret. It was happenstance that your case was so problematic it caught their eye and then their eye never left any thoughts on how do you how do you get people to focus on a case when there's so many injustices i, I i'm pleased that you would think enough of me to ask me that question <laughs> i i'm amazed by the power of social media and by the sap and the power of podcasts to to communicate by the millions and you know i think one fortunate thing we have is as the community of, of folks grow that are concerned with the need to transform. It includes non-lawyers. It includes uh, writers. It includes uh, digital specialists and media persons. And there's something about the genuineness of Curtis's story. There's something about the, the heart compelling story of a 17-year-old girl who's ripped away from a one-year-old baby and sentenced to 20 years on a drug charge. First offense least culpable person. I mean, to get stories like that in the social media, to point that attention uh, to the appropriate authorities is something that, you know, when I first started as a defense lawyer, you know, nearly 40 years ago, there was no capacity. You know, it was only the people at the courthouse who saw the miscarriages. Now, there's almost always somewhere you can go to get a story amplified and get it to into the broader community. And I think that's that's a real benefit. I mean, we have now the capacity to expand our community. And it shouldn't be that only lawyers and cops and judges are the ones that know what goes on in the courthouse. And of course, now that we have a better, much more sophisticated sense of how people survive trauma, we should only be directing resources to people brought into the system. There's a whole swath of our community out there 
whose experiences with trauma are not being addressed. And that leads to educational and social problems that all bubble up. I think for the first time in my consciousness, we have larger groups of people asking the right questions and, and looking for real substantial answers. So I, I tend to be more hopeful and optimistic that we're going to get broader community support and that it will cut through some of the partisan stuff that's dividing us on, on, on too many issues. Well, I never thought I would see the day when Virginia would abolish the death penalty. It was second to Texas in executions. And I started off as a law professor in Virginia studying the decline in death sentencing. But I never thought that decline would lead to abolition. Uh, but then again, cases like yours, uh, Mr. Flowers, you know, when people see how badly even a death penalty case where everyone should be focused on getting it right, it's a murder, it's a really serious case. I think that has really changed some minds, but also the misconduct that goes into death sentences. It's, uh, I, I, I never thought I would see that day. It sounds like any day now we may see the governor of Virginia sign the legislation for a southern state to abolish the death penalty. That was unthinkable. Uh, certainly 15 years ago, it was unthinkable. But going back 20, 30 years, it was not in anyone's conversation. Like you said, Virginia was neck and neck with Texas in terms of how, how quickly uh, they could kill folks off the road. Uh, Curtis, I hope you uh, are willing to lend your voice to some of these efforts to, to change practices in Mississippi and, and around the country. I think you're, you know, uh, you're an inspiration to all of us who, who care deeply about these issues, but you're, you're an inspiration to people who are learning about these injustices for the first time. And I, I hope you, uh, you never did give up. And I, and I hope you keep that, that love and passion for, for justice going forward. And I just can't thank you enough for, for spending some time with us today. And thank you, Henderson. We, we hope you come back to, to meet our students in person someday and, and, and stay in touch and anything that we can do to help your work with your foundation, certainly us at Duke Law School, at, at our Wilson Center, which works on uh, reform of the criminal system. We, we should also thank uh, the Black Law Students Association at Duke, the Science and Society at Duke, Duke Law Federal Society, Criminal Law Society. So a whole series of really wonderful groups at Duke all banded together to, to support this event. And we just can't thank you enough. I, I thank you all. And, and I would love to come meet you all in person. I really would. Before too long, we hope. <laughs> and I would love being a big voice to help whatever's going on to, to make a change. I really would. I'm so proud of you, uh, Curtis. I love you as a friend, as a, as a client. Take good care. All right. I love you all. Thank you, Brandon, for having us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. You can also visit Duke Law on the web and at law.duke.edu.